it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a great show in uh, store uh, coming up uh, today. It's Wednesday. Of course, that means Armchair Politics. East Village Magazine editor Jan Worth Nelson will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and uh, Henry Hatter on the right. Um, they'll be uh, that'll be coming up uh, for the second and third hour of the show or at 10 o'clock if you're listening to us live on 92.1 FM or streaming us live at TomSumnerProgram.com and uh, this hour I'm going to be talking with um, coming up in just just a few minutes right after the first break with a um, She's a former assistant attorney general for the state of uh, Minnesota and a um, environmental attorney who has written a new book called Denial, Barbara Fries. A very interesting conversation coming up with her. And also, I'm going to be trying to uh, connect with um, Genesee County uh, Clerk and Register uh, John Gleason. And um, actually, I'm going to take a, a a little break here we'll play play a little music while I try to reconnect we uh, we were connected and uh, I lost the connection so I'm going to try and get that connection going and again in the meantime uh, here's here's a little music every state has something its rotary club can boast of some product that the state produces the most of Rhode Island is little but oh my it has a product anyone would buy comes from Arizona Beaches come from Georgia And lobsters come from Maine The wheat fields are the sweet fields 
All right, back with you now. And uh, back connected with uh, Genesee County Clerk Register John Gleason, who joins me by phone. John, uh, thanks for uh, joining me this morning. Thanks for you. We need you. You're the voice of love. We like that. Well, thanks, John. And and uh, as as uh, we had talked about previously, uh, ballots were printed this week. Um, actually, are, are they all in now? They have been delivered to the local clerks. Every local clerk in the county received their test ballots Friday or Monday. And many of the communities now have started sending out the ballot request the applications for many have been returned in the applications thousands of ap applications have been returned and thousands of ballots are now in the mail and uh, for people who maybe didn't get an, an application or or maybe just missed it you know just threw it out with the junk mail or whatever um can they contact their their local clerk in their township or uh, city to get a ballot Yes, and that's a great time to offer this advice. Deal with your county municipal clerk as often as you can. If you haven't sent out an application, go in person, fill out an application and pick up your ballot. And if you filled out a ballot, please, if you don't have to put it in the mail, don't. Hand deliver that to your local municipal clerk. Don't trust the mail. Many, many items that we have mailed, have not shown up for weeks. So you can't really trust the mail this year. And if you want your vote to count, please hand deliver it to your local clerk. And and that's really tough because a lot of people are going to try to vote by mail this year uh, because of the pandemic. Has that, um, we saw in the August primary, there, there was kind of a surge of voting, uh, partly because of mail-in voting, John. Um, has that changed how many ballots you have to order and how do you gauge that no you got to order 100 percent during the presidential election um but here's the biggest thing that we don't talk about enough but election issues are more complex than people would ever understand the one consistency tom that we left out in this discussion have mail to use and that's our snowbirds up here in the north Many folks leave in October or the end of September for their uh, winter retreats. Sure. And they have no other recourse but to use the mail. Here's the problem. they got to use the mail going down and back. So they have no recourse except to use postal. They don't have access to that local clerk. And as soon as they get in, get their uh, application, turn around and get it back in. And any of the family members that are listening, if you have snowbirds, expedite, expedite this year. And please, if you have family members down south for the winter, make sure that they turn around that process as soon as they can. How long do you think it's going to be uh, on November 3rd um, or after November 3rd before we actually have tallies? Well, with the recent ruling that uh, they can be postmarked and received two weeks after the election, I see some real consternation. Uh, most people think this is going to be a competitive election cycle. 
And there could be a lot of acrimony, a lot of public demonstrations waiting for the final result. Now the election won't be over till the middle of November because we have to count those postmarked uh, ballots, which I'm for that, but I wish we would have had more than a few weeks to administer that decision. Yeah, but we won't know. We won't know for weeks. If it's a tight election, we're not going to know. If you look at uh, the Trump-Hillary Clinton race um, four years ago, that was decided by less than two votes per precinct across the state. That's how tight that election was. And we're going to be able to harvest ballots two weeks after that election. And, but they have to be postmarked by Election Day. Yes, that's correct. And I'm for that, and I'll tell you why I'm for that. I, I don't care how people vote. I really don't care how you vote. I care if you vote. But I use this as an example. People say, well, you can't trust that process. But we trust it with our taxes. If you have your taxes postmarked by midnight on April 15th, you're good. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. So I use that as kind of my template for rationalizing why we use that date. It is election day, and it is tax day. So that correlation is very, very similar. And with the, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do what you suggested, John. I you know I'm gonna fill out my absentee ballot, but I'm gonna deliver it to a Dropbox or to, actually I'm gonna take it right to the clerk's office, um, and and turn it in. Uh, um, but is, do you think uh, because more and more people are trying to get out more after being cooped up for six months that we're going to see a lot of people at the polls? I think you're going to see a higher percentage at the polls than you did in the August primary because presidential elections draw a lot of excitement, a lot of activity. Those candidates were not on the ballot in August. So you're going to see, I think, exponentially higher turnout in November. I think this election will set all kinds of records, and I'm glad it's doing it. It's uh, You're electing the highest office in the world, and it's nice to see voter participation. Uh, if there was one thing we could do if we could allay the, fur, the great fears about the process, that would help a lot. I think that might increase voter participation. I wouldn't worry about any of this process except the mail. I'd worry about the mail more than the administration of the election locally here. Just because of the timing of it? Slow delivery? Yeah, we, uh, Tom, we mailed a piece of literature out the week before the uh, primary election. Tuesday before the Tuesday primary, okay? Um, two weeks ago, I had one of our voters called me up and said he had just got his uh, mailer then. From the primary. <laughs> in the primary election, yes. And about two weeks ago, this is this is good caution to your listeners. Uh, two weeks ago, yesterday, we had a Flint voter that contacted me. He received his absentee ballot in the mail. Two weeks ago, yesterday. For the August primary. For the August primary, yes. So that tells you do not trust the mail. If you don't have to use it, get in the car, get on the MTA bus, and go deliver that. But do you think opening up the, uh, 
they call it early voting in other states. Here we call it uh, no reason absentee ballot voting. But do you think opening that up has uh, contributed to having more people vote and more people participate? I absolutely do. Um, first of all, I think many campaigns are similar. You ran for office. Um, many campaigns model each other. And what we did this year because of the decision for the mail, we utilized majority of our resources or vote-by-mail voters. We literally changed our campaign model and reached out to those mail-in voters. So I think we not only established that opportunity, but the candidates are really driving the mail vote and early return on the ballots as well. So, yeah, I think you're going to see some great turnouts across this county, and I'm really glad that's going to happen. Um, John, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to make sure that people... Um, is there information on uh, the uh, county clerk website about um, how people can get ballots and, and all of that? The, yes, and here's the interesting thing. You do not get the ballots from the county. You get the ballots from your municipal clerk. Contact your municipal clerk. Go on your local clerk's webpage, on your city or township page. Because we really don't administer the election. The local clerks administer that. We don't really register folks here at the county, the local community and advocates do the registration and then forward that registration to the local clerk. And and finally, John, um, do you think uh, there have been some changes in, uh, in what clerks can do with regard to processing these uh, ballots that come in? Um, do you think they should be able to count them beforehand? I don't think they should count them beforehand. I think they should do everything available to prepare them for the vote. I support opening the envelope. Once it's in the hands of that clerk... You've got to remember, there's an absentee county board that handles all the mail for years. So that ballot, whether it's arriving two weeks before the election or the day of the election, that ballot is administered behind doors by an absentee county board. Well, John, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I really appreciate it, as always. Best of luck Let to you. Let me just say this. This is what I say. Lift the gift. Lift the gift. Voting is a gift that was paid for at a high cost. This year, more than ever, get out and vote. Thank you, John. All right. God bless you, John. Thank you. for what you do. That was uh, John Gleason, the uh, Genesee County clerk register he said the ballots are in and they've been delivered to your local uh, clerks if you haven't received a notice about uh, applying for a ballot get in touch with your uh, township or village or or city clerk and, uh, and and get a ballot so you can be counted if you don't plan to go to the polls in person 
We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, early gate rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian Residence, add $3. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner program.com The Tom Sumner program.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour asks uh, the question, how far will industry leaders go to protect their bottom line? In a newly published uh, book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. She is an environmental attorney and former assistant attorney general for the great state of Minnesota. She joins me now by phone. Her name is Barbara Fries. Barbara, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, the book, Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. I, I couldn't help asking myself, in this day and age, what is considered indefensible? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> and I, I don't I mean to, to be so silly about it, but but I just wonder. You know, we we accept so many things now that as as being just the way we do it. You're you're absolutely right, and and it is very hard to shock anybody these days. Um, but as far as the the eight campaigns that I chose. They were cases where the the facts in question were so uh, clearly um, uh, solved by science or or by the evidence available. So I didn't really look at anything that was a close call. Uh, and so I look at, for example, and, and was it was it all slavery. was it all business or corporations, or did you include some uh, uh, government agencies and? It's almost all just the industries that I'm okay. quoting. Okay, yeah, that's and, that's why Flint didn't make the list. Uh, yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. And to the extent that we're talking about government malfeasance, there that's not a list. Though I do look at the litigasoline industry, so there's plenty of uh, defense of putting this known cumulative poison into the fuel supply, which and of course poisoned generations of people. Well, and and lead was the miracle metal back in the oh, it, 30s, and, and um, it was... Well, uh, it was considered a, a gift of God and, and called that by the industry when they were putting it into the fuel supply, though at the same time it was understood even then to be a cumulative, subtle brain poison. And so there, there was quite a dispute back even in the 1920s about whether this this toxic substance should be put into the fuel supply. Uh, the industry, this is actually discovered by GM. Um, and it wasn't just fuel. It uh, was in paint. It was in all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I actually had to think really hard, do I want to do a chapter on leaded gas or, or lead paint? Um, but I, I ended up choosing the gasoline. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of lead exposures. And, and what happened was the leaded gasoline industry really dominated the scientific study and sort of convinced the world that really high lead levels in the blood were perfectly natural and harmless. And it took a lot of outsiders to get involved to say, 
that is not true, it's not natural, it's certainly not harmless, and that led to a movement that, that got the lead out of the gasoline and out of the paint and out of the cans, the, the canned food had, had lead solder, uh, and a lot of other sources. So it, it really took quite a lot of pushback. Um, and, and what were some of the other examples um, of, of things that you would consider indefensible? And then we and well, we also yeah. have to add into that um, because I, you already uh, made reference to um, based on scientific evidence, and we have an awful lot of people now who don't trust scientific evidence very much. Well, that's that's true, and, and it wasn't all science denial that I'm writing about, but it's all evidence denial of one form or another. The eight industries I'll I'll just go through them real quick that I touch upon. Yeah. one is the slave trade. Uh, and I, so I start back in the, in the late 1700s, in Britain in particular. I talk also about radium consumption, because about a century ago, drinking radium was considered a health fad. Um, then I talk about uh, basic uh, defensive unsafe automobiles by the auto industry, uh, leaded gas, as I mentioned, um, the defensive chlorofluorocarbons, which we now know deplete the ozone layer, um, of course, the tobacco claims that for, for decades denied that there was any harm in smoking. Um, and I also look at Wall Street and its defense of the housing bubble and the various financial instruments that led up to the financial crash of, of 2008. And I end with the fossil fuel industry and its denial of the climate crisis. In in researching this, and, and this is kind of uh, a little bit out of left field, but um, I think we all know stories like the tobacco industry and others that, you know, denied any harm for decades and and put up big campaigns to, to try and uh, um, at least glamorize the product to the point where people didn't pay any attention to the evidence they were hearing. But mm-hmm. did you come across companies that were actually um, doing the right thing? That they would discover there was a problem with something that they were doing that that was profitable, that they could do differently and perhaps still be profitable? I'm sure there are examples of that. I just wondered if you came across a few. Yeah, not exactly. I did come across one situation where the industry finally saw enough evidence of harm and ended up deciding not to uh, produce their product anymore, but that was also that was basically the chemical industry when the ozone hole emerged from Antarctica, and the evidence eventually linked it very strongly to chlorofluorocarbons. Um, but the chemical industry wasn't dependent on chlorofluorocarbons. That was just one of their products, and they could phase it out, especially knowing that they were about to get it phased out for them by law, and they could replace it with other products that they could sell. So I, you know, I really am looking at eight industries that are that caused enormous harm and, and denied it. For well, and the chemical industry um, still had PFAS to make. Oh, they had plenty of other <laughs> chemicals that were, were uh, going to pose dangers that they could deny, so that wasn't going to be a problem. Um, and, and so um, the, the chemical uh, industry was one. What were some of the others? Well, in a couple of cases, you found industries that eventually accepted that they were causing the harm that they'd been denying for decades, but then 
decided that they would just continue to sell as much of their product as possible. Tobacco is the main example there where, you know, decade after decade, from the 50s up to the 90s, they, the tobacco executives would say, first of all, that there was no real proof that their product was harmful, but they would also say, if it was proven to be harmful, we would stop selling it because we are a moral company. I mean, claims of that sort were really common. Then finally in the 90s, they started to realize they didn't even need to claim that. And some of the executives started to admit, well, of course, we're going to sell it anyway, um, as long as it's legal to sell. So around 2000 and beyond, and, and there were lawsuits prompting a more admissions at this point, the the tobacco executives started to agree, the main tobacco companies started to admit, yes, uh, our product does in fact kill lots and lots of people and it's addictive. Um, But that did not in any way diminish their enthusiasm for selling the product. I think we are starting to see something similar now among the big oil companies when it comes to climate change. ExxonMobil, for example, spent decades questioning the science, trying to raise doubts about it. Now they they not only accept the scientific basics, which is that their product is among those really driving this dangerous uh, warming, um, but they claim to support the goals of the International Paris Agreement, which uh, would require dramatic reductions in global emissions. Um, That, of course, poses a huge threat to their own uh, future, but when they make their own projections about what they think is going to happen, they don't project that they're going to be selling less or producing less oil or gas. They still see a, a pretty rosy future for their industry. So it's a, it's a form of acceptance on the one hand with a continuing kernel of denial on the other. I, I've um, even seen, and I think it was in fact Exxon, running, uh, running television ads um, talking about how they've they've redirected their research into looking for sustainable types of energy, and then it's like Exxon working for you, you know that oh, that, that right. kind of thing, um, while not changing anything at the pump. Well, they're I mean they are trying to reduce their own emissions, but what they have not done, unlike. British Petroleum, which is the first oil company that's taken the next step, they have not pledged to reduce their production of oil and gas. Um, and so that's a little bit like, you know, a tobacco company deciding to put a no-smoking policy in their corporate lunchroom, but still promoting <laughs> cigarettes as much as possible. I, I think that's sort of where we are right now. Yeah, no smoking, but there's a cigarette machine. Um, there's a cigarette machine, and they're going to try to sell as many as possible to their consumers. Right, exactly. Um, another thing that 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 I wonder about as we're talking about this, Barbara, is the um, this this notion of how far leaders will go to protect the bottom line. Is is there a sense that um, how ugly did some of these things get? Well, you know, if you go back to the slave trade, it doesn't get much uglier than that. Um, and I, the way I try to look at this is to look at the whole range of denials from the most blatant lies to the more subtle self-deceptions. Um, so depending on whether you consider, uh, you know, a good old-fashioned lie uglier than, than a kind of sinister deception, um, that, that makes us a little bit of a hard question to ask. But but obviously, people were, you know, the slave trade was a totally respected industry. 
Uh, Britain dominated it in the late 1700s when they were confronted with evidence of the brutality of slavery, or, or I should say when the British public was confronted with this evidence. The industry, of course, knew about it. The industry came back and said, we're, we're not brutal. We are actually rescuing these people from Africa. Uh, they want to be uh, purchased. They are enjoying their crossing uh, across the Atlantic on these festive slave ships where they're singing and dancing and eating all this <laughs> delicious food, and, and that they're going to these comfortable plantations, and their lives are much happier than the peasants of Europe. Um, so that I think that gives you a, a sample of just how ugly this can get. Obviously, that was a very long time ago. Um, but, you know, when you think about the tobacco industry selling their product, uh, you know, aggressively marketing it to young kids, and, they, and there's a lot of evidence of, of that sort of thing, you know, they are right now in this country uh, responsible. It's been linked to something like 480,000 deaths a year. Globally, it's millions of deaths a year. So that's getting pretty ugly. You mentioned something uh, almost in passing that I wanted to unpack a little bit. That's self-deception. Um, how, do, how does self-deception play into this? And does it excuse anybody from pressing on with uh, uh, racking up uh, dollars on their bottom line? Well, I, I try to separate it from the moral judgment, and, and I don't think anybody reading my book will think I'm giving anybody a moral pass. But I also try to recognize that rationalization, or we could just call it bias, is an essential part of human nature. And part of my book is looking at uh, the social psychology in particular. We are, you know, I, I don't come at this with the notion that we're naturally objective unless we're biased and that's morally wrong. I come at it with the assumption that we are all biased when it comes to our own self-interest and our own tribal loyalties and that it takes a lot of work to become objective and if you're not doing that work you're not you're not likely achieving it. So one of the points that I try to make is that the corporation itself as an institution involves a lot of aspects that enhance our natural biases, that enhance our natural tribal animosities toward others um, that that reduce our sense of uh, social responsibility. There's division of labor, for example. There's the division of ownership from management, so that you've got shareholders that are far away, managers who are thinking, well, my responsibility isn't to society, it's to my shareholders. You've got a, a powerful justifying ideology that that has gotten stronger um, in over the decades, at least uh, in terms of influence and policy, arguing that the market can do everything and the government shouldn't interfere with it. Uh, so, so I really kind of look at this as, as a variety of things. And, and, and again, maybe to return to tobacco, you have different kinds of denial. On the one hand, you have the tobacco industry saying, well, th there is no proof this is harmful. On the other, you have, I actually start the book with a quote from a tobacco ex executive saying, who knows what you would do if you didn't smoke? You might beat your wife. You might drive cars <laughs> fast. Um, and, and I put that in this category of, of this kind of easy rationalization, you know, a self-deception that makes it easier for these folks to sell a product they know is going to kill a lot of folks. You know, I've got one that's even more insidious. For over 50 years, I was, well, maybe not over, but, but nearly 50 years, I was a militant smoker. I liked smoking. Was I addicted? Probably. But, oh, yeah. but uh, you know, and, until fairly recently. And 
It really didn't matter to me. I knew what the dangers were, but I liked smoking. Mm-hmm. And, and the industry try, gave you a lot of reasons to continue, and that was one of the things that we saw in the documents, that they were working very hard to provide ways to help the smoker overcome their concerns about health and to effectively rationalize what they were continuing to do. And, and of course, the nicotine didn't hurt. But what I'm saying is that, that there, was a, there was a market there that, um, that despite the evidence, even if there hadn't been attempts to cover that evidence or at least mitigate it or minimize it in some way, that would just blast through the warnings and the evidence and, and say, I'm going to do this because it's my choice and I like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, which which kind of brings me in a weird path around to this. Um, what has a bigger impact on companies changing their behavior? Um, regulation or market forces when it becomes popular not to use fossil fuels? Um, you know, when it becomes cooler not to smoke um you know do you know what i mean by that yeah well the way i try to look at this certainly well with tobacco it's it's different than fossil fuels so let me try to answer those differently okay with tobacco um you what we found was that uh you we really needed lots of social signals that discouraged smoking in order to go from a a world where about 40 three, 44% of adults were smoking, which would have been in the mid-60s, to a world where more like 14% of adults were smoking uh, today. And that happened through a series of little tiny laws that made it, that discouraged smoking and, and, you know, discouraged the advertising, tried to change the social norm around smoking. So the laws had a a role and, and the laws were necessary to push back on the various market forces that were promoting smoking and this and the social norms. With climate change, um, you know, the markets can help reduce our emissions, but as long as, for example, there's no price on carbon dioxide, which is true for most of the country, then the markets are blind to continuing to destroy the climate. So in, in a case like that, you absolutely need laws because there are, there is such, a, uh, there are such market failures that prevent us from addressing the problem. I was watching a movie recently, and at the beginning of the movie, they had, you know, the rating and uh, some cautions about some of the things that were included in the movie, uh, warnings, basically, uh, parental warnings mm-hmm. or whatever. And it talked about um, violence, sexual situations, uh, fear. Uh, there were a couple others, and I was just stunned. They had smoking. Really? Listed as That's one of the warnings, you know, something you were going to see in this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, what's funny here is, uh, or interesting maybe, is that among the ways that the tobacco industries got smoking to be so popular was when they worked with Hollywood. And, and Hollywood, of course, recognized pretty early that smoking could be quite elegant, it could be quite dramatic, they could use it for all sorts of ways. So uh, cigarettes in movies were promoted by the industry. And I would imagine that when people see smoking, they are, it, it does sort of promote the social normalization of smoking. 
Um, so it may seem kind of weird and extreme to, to see that listed among these other factors, but I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if there is actually some science that supports that, that smoking, like if your kids see a movie where everybody's smoking, they might be more likely to pick it up. Well, yeah, if you, you know, back in the day when, you know, everywhere you looked, you saw, you know, um, these these cultural icons, James Bond and the Rat Pack and all of these people, mm-hmm. and they were all smoking and they were all cool. And if I smoke, yeah. I'll be cool, too. Exactly. And that's what teenagers and, and most of the people who started smoking did so before they were 18. Um, that's how teenagers view it. And of course, they would be particularly susceptible to peer pressure. Now I mentioned the warning label on the uh, on movies, but um, how much of an impact do, do regulations requiring labeling, like famously with cigarettes, the 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 cautions on the sides of the packs that they had to print? Um, mm-hmm. How much impact does that have on getting companies to change their behavior? Yeah. Well, they, those labels don't try to get companies to change their behavior. Of course, they're trying to get consumers to change their behavior. And I think it's, it's probable that over time, the, the written warnings on the tobacco pack have had diminished impact on, on discouraging smoking. What's interesting is a law was passed, uh, I think it was 2009, um, giving the FDA the authority to put pictures on tobacco packs, pictures that are, are sort of gruesome representations of the kinds of tumors and things you can get from smoking. Yeah. Um, and uh, other countries have that. done that. And I think that's been found to be quite uh, effective in other countries. The tobacco industry challenged it, and they said the pictures, the, the court decided that the pictures were too likely to evoke an emotional response, sent the FDA back, and, and uh, they've been apparently trying to find more attractive tumors to put on their their packages um so we don't yet have packages uh one one other thing about the the writing the written warnings on the packets is that while the industry at the time and they came about in the 60s while the industry at the time publicly opposed adding these warnings the uh, tobacco lawyers were actually quite happy because it gave them a new defense to the lawsuits they could argue that hey consumers were warned they assumed the risk and that would help them um, avoid liti- avoid liability, and they succeeded on those grounds for decades. We've talked quite a bit about smoking and about uh, gas uh, or, or fossil fuels and, and climate change and, chem- and chemicals, but what were some of the other industries um, well, as I mentioned, about a century ago, there was uh, an industry around radium, um, the, oh, the yeah. extremely radioactive element, and there was this kind of mystique around it. It was considered a stimulant, a health stimulant. Uh, the company, the top company that was refining it and selling it, um, actually opened up what they called a free radium clinic in Pittsburgh in 1913, and they would inject people with radium. They would give them radium to drink. Uh, they wanted them to consume radium because if you if you used it, if you didn't actually consume it, you didn't have enough demand for their product. So they were, and they were saying that this was something that you could use to treat, you know, everything from arthritis to <laughs> insanity. And to, I mean, ultimately it became a part of the, something sold to consumers. You could get it in toothpaste, bath salts, and a lot of people would drink 
radium. It was marketed, in fact, a lot for male sexual dysfunction because it was considered a stimulant, and uh, it was put into it was put into rectal suppositories. I mean, there were many ways to get radium into your body, and then eventually it took some years, but eventually the deaths associated with this exposure became more public. There was one very high-profile uh, industrialist who drank, who had enough money that he could afford to poison himself completely with drinking radium, and uh, his facial bones began to dissolve. This was often the way it happened to people. Died very gruesomely, and that hit the headlines in the 30s, and, and that helped put an end to this fad. More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register 
to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead. Also, radium was used to make glow-in-the-dark paint. And a lot of people are more familiar with the example of the, the young women who were hired to put to paint that radium paint onto clock faces and watch dials. And they would put the paintbrushes between their lips to, to, put, to make a point of the paintbrush. And many of those young women died, again, very gruesomely. And uh, fortunately, well, not fortunately, but there was a lot of attention brought to these deaths. And that did finally bring about some regulations limiting it. But that's um, but that speaks to another point. Um, how often was it the case, as with radium, where perhaps it wasn't known what the harms were until there right. were just well, stacks of bodies? Right. In, in the case of radium, um, I should I should stress that. They did know at the beginning that, I mean, as soon as it was discovered by the Curies, Pierre and, and Marie Curie in 1898, they immediately discovered that this stuff uh, burns your flesh um, because they, they accidentally burned themselves. And so the, they, the one thing they knew about this stuff was that it was extremely radioactive, way more radioactive than uranium, and that it killed living flesh. And, and so where I, I see quite a bit of denial was this notion that not knowing anything else about this element, they could go ahead and try to, you know, start injecting it into people and, and just assume it was going to be healthy. Um, so, so I certainly consider some denial there. I think they, they really should have known. And, and in fact, very early on, they did know that this product accumulated in the body. So this wasn't just some fleeting thing that, that they could say was going to be good for you. By the way, once the, the young women started dying, their, again, their facial bones often dissolving or growing these large, horrible growths, um, once the young women painting the dial started dying, the industry that hired them claimed that it wasn't have, didn't have anything to do with the radium and that these women, that they had hired a lot of uh, women who were already sickly. They were hiring cripples out of the goodness of their heart because the work was fairly easy. And when the uh, women's conditions uh, progressed naturally, they said, they were unfairly blamed for their, for their earlier kindness. I should point out that by this time, not only did these women have these extremely unusual symptoms of dissolving bones, but they were exhaling radioactivity. They had radioactive breath. Wow. 
It's it's just it's hard to even imagine. It and it's one thing, you know, when we start out we discover new things and and we think it's a miracle like lead. Um and and uh, there've been other things, well, nuclear power. Um yeah. It, you know, it 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 has a lot of pluses. It has a lot of benefits, but the negative doesn't have a solution. Well, and and you have institutions there uh, that have an enormous incentive to celebrate the benefits and not as many institutions there to investigate and publicize and control the harms. And that's a big part of the problem. I mean, with lead, while it was considered a gift of God to to put leaded gas, I mean, it was called a gift of God by the industry, um, when they put tetraethyl lead into the gasoline supply, Lead itself had been known for a couple thousand years to be a subtle accumulative brain poison. So uh, the industry really tried to hide the fact that they were putting lead in the gasoline. That's why they called it ethyl. They didn't, they didn't call it leaded <laughs> gas. And they actually tried to uh, keep the, those who were talking about it to keep the word lead out of the conversation. But again, it, it, lead was something that was promoted for... Uh, all kinds of things. We mentioned paint, but lead pipes. Mm-hmm. It was it was considered for infrastructure. Lead was the new magic metal that would last for a long time and hold up well. Right. And, it's had it has had a lot of uses, and it, and it's very useful. If it just didn't, uh, you know, poison people. Now you said something a moment ago um, about there being a, a lot of. Uh, forces on the side of promoting promoting these new products um, as as they're discovered, and even when it's uncovered that they may be harmful, that continue to promote these things, and not as many organizations or not as many resources talking about the negative impacts. Is that changing now? Uh, I I don't think it really is because um, when I'm when I'm talking about the forces promoting the products, I'm talking, of course, about the corporations and corporate power, corporate wealth. You know, continues to grow relative, I think, to other sectors of our society. Um, you know, there are we do have independent scientists working in academia, often funded by the government, but they're frequently under attack uh, by the industries and, and sometimes by government if they don't like the results that they're, they're getting. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that we continue to try to reinforce and strengthen independent science. I would add independent journalism. I mean, certainly we're seeing a crisis in local newspapers and, and other forms of traditional journalism that are declining. Fortunately, there, there are new forms of journalism that may be taking their place, but... Um, you know, I, I do feel, especially with respect to climate, and, and I have a personal history with with respect to working on, on climate issues, but I, I really do think it's, um, you know, we, we really do need to be investing a lot more in regulatory resources, in putting together, in, in funding independent science and journalism, uh, in paying attention to these issues, because it's just so easy for them to get um, ignored uh, and and just not be studied the way they need to be. What um, what prompted you to write this book? 
and um, to do I all the research an, going into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm an environmental attorney and worked uh, at the state of Minnesota um, for a number of years when I when I was a young lawyer and started out uh, as an assistant attorney general in Minnesota. And when I was there, we ended up having a proceeding where we were trying to figure out how dangerous burning coal was for our environment. And we burned a lot of coal and still do burn some in our power plants, like most states. Uh, And we uh, looked at climate change, and the coal industry brought a handful of scientists to Minnesota to testify that climate change was not a problem, and if it happened, it would be mild, and, and we'd enjoy it, and that, in fact... CO2 in the atmosphere was great. We should we should actually promote it because it would it's good for the plants. They would argue, and so and 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 also at the same time they were dismissing the mainstream scientists, saying that they were biased politically or financially or in some other sort of vague way. By the way, the world had already signed the uh, treaty at the Earth Summit saying we're going to fight global warming based on the science of all of these really thousands of other scientists. So basically I was confronted then with climate denial by the coal industry. And in the years that followed, I did a lot of other work uh, related to coal and trying to promote climate policies and whatnot. And so I saw a lot of climate denial over the years, and that really sparked my interest in this as a a political phenomenon, a social phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon, and uh, started to got me start wondering, well, to what extent has this kind of industrial denial affected humanity in the past? Where, you know, how far from reality has it taken us? How have we gotten past it if we did get past it? Uh, and, and how is it actually manifested? What did people actually say when they were defending their industries? So I really do focus a lot in the book in in specifically looking at the denials and the rationalizations and, and quoting the industry members to, to uh, I think, help put some of today's denial in historic context. Well, Barbara, this is fascinating. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, and we're just about out of it. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It's called Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible by Barbara Fries. Um, is, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about about you and and the book and and other work that you've done and will be doing. Do you have a website? I do. It is barbarafreeze.com, and my last name is spelled F-R-E-E-S-E. Well, Barbara, thank you for spending this time with me today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed our talk. Take care. Again, that was... Um, environmental attorney and a former Minnesota assistant attorney general. She is the author of the New York Times notable book, Coal, A Human History, and now the newly published Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Maybe five Let's see the light